Mark chapter 6. He went away from there, Jesus, and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, who am I beheaded? Has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll give it to you. 
And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom. She went out, said to her mother, uh, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body, laid it in a tomb. Let's ask God's mercy. Oh God, you are the Lord of light. We ask that you would shed light upon your word that we may see Jesus. Oh God, we desperately need to know him. Speak and give us ears to hear, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you had a similar type of experience. I know it happened to me when I was a kid. It might have happened to you. It goes something like this. A birthday party, at least it was for me, maybe not a birthday party for you, maybe some other thing. Maybe you went to uh, Carowinds or some sort of, um, you know, the, the county fair or something like that, but got to see an illusionist. And I remember this birthday party particularly well because uh, got to see the illusionist not like way, way, way far away so that it was hokey and the guy was just slightly creepy, but got to see him do his magic right up close. And um, y'all have probably figured out I was fairly cynical as a child because I'm extremely cynical now. But I remember coming home and talking to my parents and talking to my dad particularly and was just overwhelmed by the mystery, the magic the guy had done. I remember one particularly, it was actually with my dad. He put a little neck thing on my dad and then stuck a sword in one side and it came out the other. And my mind exploded. (laughs) How did he do it? My dad's alive. He had a a sword through his neck. I'm actually still not entirely sure. I don't remember. I probably had to have irritated my parents. Maybe being a little bit excited for too long. You know how it is where the kid just continues to kind of foment Marvel and such. And I, at some point, kind of had to pull me aside and be like, okay, you're older enough that you should probably have figured this out, but magic's not real. Let's talk about how he did it. And walked through and spoiled every bit of the show. (laughs) Every trick. Dad's like, didn't put a sword through my neck. Looked like it wasn't actually. Walk me through everything how it was done. And you know, the amazing thing was, is it really wasn't that interesting anymore after that. (laughs) My little, young, underdeveloped heart 
displayed beautifully so much of how the human mind works, particularly the fallen one, which is when we think we've mastered something, it no longer seems to be interesting. When we think we've comprehended something, it loses that that bit of mystery, that bit of wonder, that bit of awe. It takes a, a very special kind of mind to study a field and to master the field and to continue to marvel at the field. We see a very similar type of experience happen here in chapter 6. And Mark, uh, Mark puts these passages out of order on purpose. They're not chronologically arranged. He's telling the story of what happens in the ministry of Jesus. And he puts chapter 6 pieced together immediately following chapter 5. In fact, actually, the, uh, the first few verses here Luke has is one of the very first stories in the Gospel of Luke. Remember how Jesus comes in and reads Isaiah and says, you know, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim freedom and the poor and help. That's, that's what Luke has this passage as. Totally different places. Intriguing. But Mark is highlighting something because chapter 5, every story is a story of the Gospel going out and people marveling at Jesus. Everywhere it goes, the ministry is blessed. People have their eyes open and their minds blown and they bow the knee and they wonder at who Christ is. And then chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the opposite. Chapter 6 is marvel after marvel and people just don't care. Instead, we see the heart of the person who thinks they've kind of comprehended the situation. They've mastered what's before them. They're just not interested. They're not having it. And they end up, each kind of story highlights a couple of different hang-ups. And we're going to look at really kind of four different hang-ups along the way. This is not a comprehensive list as to what people get upset about with Christ or the Scriptures or Christianity. But it is four things for us to kind of contemplate because, well, we'll see at the end why that matters for us today. The first is uh, this interaction in Nazareth. He goes away from where he's been doing all of his ministry. He's been based out of Capernaum uh, and has been having this tremendous kind of yield to his ministry, the Lord Jesus is. And he returns to his hometown. His disciples coming with him. And this would have been a really important thing because you remember, by and large, Jesus, when he leaves, is just kind of a guy. Uh, He's grown up poor. Uh, He's been known his entire life as uh, an illegitimate child. Uh, And pretty much you can always kind of count to nine to figure out when he was conceived and when she was married. You think about in a small town where everybody knows everybody's business. Everybody would have known and remembered. You think about the names he would have been called growing up. He would have heard them all. Then on top of that is not just growing up in a small town where he would have been ridiculed for his um, questionable parentage, but also uh, for just his kind of, we'd say, debilitating poverty, we might say. He grew up poor, very poor. His dad was a carpenter. Uh, We suspect probably died when Jesus was fairly young, his stepdad, I guess. Uh, And then Jesus himself takes over the business. And when he leaves, that's what they know him as. A poor, 
probably somewhat unsuccessful carpenter with questionable parentage that everybody can do the math to figure out what happened. He would not have been what we might call the most honorable man in town. And here we have him returning now, not just (laughs) in the same condition, but with him bringing disciples. He's got disciples. That's amazing. And part of that, I guess, is we tend to not kind of think entirely about what these disciples would kind of be like. If you think about, you know, we have interns. It's functionally the Lord Jesus had 12 interns, except they lived with him, they followed him, and they did everything that he did. I mean, it's, you know, Robert goes to his own home at night. He doesn't come to mine. He has breaks from me. He, he, his ministry is limited in his internship here. The disciples, it's not. It was they devoted their life to the Lord Jesus. They follow him everywhere. They listen all the time. They're with him constantly. And Jesus returns with this, but then not only returns with the disciples, but returns with, we might say, echoes of miracles. Even though they don't have the internet, don't have Twitter, don't have email, the stories of the miracles have spread. Capernaum and Nazareth, I think, if I remember correctly, are like 20 miles apart. That's not that far from kind of rumor mill to get to the town. So Jesus shows back up in his hometown, and he's, in terms of jumps in social standing, he's not hopped a couple of standard deviations. He's made a massive jump. He's gone from the kind of town, one that would be easily picked on. We won't put any other nasty names on it. Up into someone who would have kind of demanded respect just by walking into the town. Here is a successful rabbi who has A dozen people that have devoted their life to following him. They've walked away from their livelihood. They've walked away from their, they've walked away from everything to follow him. And on the Sabbath, he goes to the synagogue, goes to their version of church. And the way that that synagogue worked is a little bit different than here. He would have scriptures, somebody would stand up and read them, and then usually they would comment on them. It was um, much, um, maybe less formally organized. They didn't have somebody in most cases that was paid like me to spend their entire week studying and then kind of present the thoughts they've had for the last weeks or whatever. It was much more kind of low-key where uh, different men could do different tasks, and oftentimes uh, it was a way for a rabbi to uh, prove the quality of his ministry. He could read scripture and he could explain it. And Jesus here in his hometown, in his hometown synagogue, reads the scriptures and explains them. And again, we we kind of think, well, okay, that's interesting. You've got to remember, though, Jesus probably spent hundreds of hours in this synagogue. Remember, he, he grew up poor. He probably could not have afforded one of these. So when Jesus memorizes the scriptures, and I'm going to humbly suggest he has probably the entire Old Testament memorized, and memorized the right way, the hard way, uh, by the time he's a teenager, they would have seen him every day for hours. Because that's the only way you got to study the Old Testament. And so here they have 
what they're kind of thinking category-wise as the snot-nosed Jesus, because he's grown up here all the time. I remember when he was just a little kid reading the Bible here. Poor Jesus. Illegitimate Jesus. Takes up the scriptures and reads and begins to explain it. And I love the response in verse 2. They're staggered. What happened? Who is this guy? I mean, we remember him when he was a kid, but now what is what happened? Because you know, they also they weren't there for the beginning of his official messianic ministry. That's what his baptism is for. It, it is a line of demarcation. That's when he takes up his task fully in Messiah and begins his official formal ministry. They haven't seen that. Now he's one teaching them the scriptures, not just explaining, but he's proclaiming with authority. This is what God says. Wow. If you go back and read some of the Jewish thought from this time, some of their methods of interpretation we might not view quite so favorably. We might say in many cases it was a reach. Here Jesus is explaining the scriptures and explaining them authoritatively and explaining them accurately. And I love how you see the progression of their questions. Where did he get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Obviously it's not his. It can't be his. Who is? Of course. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Now, you get the impression this is even before he's been doing miracles in Nazareth. We certainly have from the other Gospels recorded that he doesn't do very much there. Uh, There's reasons for we'll get to in just a minute. So this is, again, the rumor mill that has produced this. How are such mighty works done by his hands? And and I love verse 3. This is, uh, I guess, in modern um, terms, sorry, I'm going to probably butcher this slang, but this is some serious shade that they lovingly uh, and harshly throw at him. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Friends, Jews in this time did not identify by their mothers. How many of the genealogies have you read where it was son of mom, son of mom, son of, you know, right? It's always, it was tracked through the men. Why do you ask a question about someone and say, son of his mother? Because they are absolutely reminding him. Because Joseph's not your daddy. This is the ancient Near Eastern version of, oh, bless your heart. Aren't you just so sweet? I don't think you mean that. They're calling him a very unpleasant word at this point. Isn't he the son of Mary? these brothers and sisters sisters are probably married staying in Nazareth they married off other you know other guys in town and they took offense at him and you get to see you think through kind of what's the offense that they're taking why is it that they get so offended at Christ and it's intriguing to me because this is an offense that has run throughout human history since this point church history you can track it from this point all the way through all the way out they are ultimately offended that he is so human he's so human 
He's so normal. I mean, you think about the questions that they're asking. How is it? We we cannot wrap our minds around the incongruity of a poor snot-nosed kid who grew up in town and is suddenly the greatest Bible teacher we've ever heard. Oh, and by the way, he also has authority unlike anyone we've ever heard. He, he speaks the scriptures and says, this is what God says, and we believe that. But that can't be right because he's the poor, snot-nosed, illegitimate kid from town that we've all made fun of for three decades. Jesus kind of summarizes this in some sense uh, with a little aphorism, a little catchy phrase here. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among relatives and in his own household. Uh, What he's capturing here is, look, a a great prophet, a great man is going to receive honor everywhere they go except for home. In many cases, it makes sense. It's because home is the hardest place. That's why, I mean, always, who are the people that will always have the hardest time listening to my sermons? Will always be my wife and my children. Because they will know my sin greater than anyone. My wife will lovingly know every time that I have to go proclaim the scriptures, because that's what the Bible says, and it's something that I stink at terribly. Do you know how hard it is to listen to that? I don't. Because I'm the one speaking it, not the one listening to it. Jesus is actually going one better with that, though, because he's never sinned. So it's not like an issue of they're struggling with his sin to say, oh, look, he's being hypocritical. What they're actually struggling with is that he's so common, but he's doing something so miraculous, and it seems to be incongruous. It seems to be at odds. How is it that he can have such knowledge of God And be so human. That's why we confess with the Nicene Creed. It's interesting, as soon as the church gets up and running, uh, you see the transition into the kind of first generation of the church fathers. Uh, 100, you have Polycarp, and 100, you have Justin Martyr, and 150 and such, and 200, uh, kind of progressing through. But those first 100 years really... (laughs) 450 years, really, the church wrestles through that one question of what do we do with a, what do we do with Jesus? The scriptures sound like he's God and the scriptures sound like he's man, and that's incongruous. And you had all kinds of false teachers that said all kinds of crazy, evil things like, ah, he wasn't actually man, he just looked like it. It was like a, a, a heavenly divine ghost. Yeah, that's not good. Or you had other false teachers that said, well, he, he was born a man, but God kind of promoted him to divinity. Well, that's not good. Created? No, that's not right. It's interesting to see how the church has wrestled through that same thing. Instead of just saying, look, God said it. I believe it. I'm going to bow the knee. Man, I am running long on everything today. You'll be out by bedtime at some point. 
<sighs> that was a joke, not serious. Uh, I also love the, the consequence of this is that they begin to ask these questions, and it's so problematic that, uh, in fact, verse 5, he, he can't really do ministry in the town. This amazing prophet who's been going around healing people, casting out demons, you know, again, when their sense of medicine, this is before they've even thought of leeches. I mean, thinking about the development of medicine, their medicine is not good. And here you have a guy who can come in and miraculously heal anyone. And they're like, eh, we don't really want it. And you're like, oh my goodness. He heals a couple of people. It's kind of out. And then verse 6. Perhaps one of the most devastating verses in the entire New Testament. And Jesus marveled. You have to be really, it has to be something special to astonish the Lord Jesus. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He goes about teaching among the villages. This is the third time in Mark that he's gone around the villages of Galilee. Uh, It's his third cycle here. And as part of this, this time he sends out his apostles. And he pairs them off two by two. And he sends them out and says, basically, more or less, take the stuff on your back. Don't take duplicates. You don't need to store up. This is not a trip about savings. This is a trip about spending. You go and spend yourself in a town. Whatever house you find, if they'll let you in, stay there. If you find, they won't let you in, find another place, stay there. But don't, don't, you know, position hop. Don't stay at this place and then somebody nicer or wealthier, oh, I'll go to that house and then I'll go. And she's a really good cook, so I'll go stay with them. Don't do that. Just wherever you go, stay and then preach the truth. Call them to repentance and it's intriguing is because right as he explains that, look, your ministry is to call people to repentance, he immediately begins to explain, and guess what? They're going to reject you. And if they reject you, you just shake off the dust and move on. And he uses a very common idea of the day is whenever Jews traveled to land outside of uh, Israel, outside the promised land, they traveled to Gentile lands. When they came back to the edge of the land of Israel, they would get all of the dust off of their, you know, their pants, their, their robes, their sandals. They brush off their feet because they consider the dust of the pagan lands to be pagan dust and they didn't want to pollute Israel. So Jesus takes up that same idea and says, look, as a a condemnation on them, if they won't listen to repentance, it's on their own head. Shake the dust off and continue moving. Verse 12, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they coupled it with miraculous signs. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. And they were rejected. The intriguing thing about this passage, and part of really what I wanted to get to with five minutes till we're supposed to be done, is what Mark puts in in verse 14. I mean, you would think that out of all the kind of parts, if you're putting the story of Jesus together, why on earth do you put this one here? King Herod happens to hear of the ministry of Jesus. And he's superstitious. So that when people are going, well, who is this Jesus guy? Well, I think he's John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. And I'm thinking, brother, you might have a guilty conscience if you're starting to think that anybody that has some sense of power is your resurrected nemesis. And he tells the story here. And it is, um, it's PG in the text. It's not really PG in content. 
Herod has, we'll say, marital problems. He has fallen in love with his brother's wife. She's either fallen in love with him or desired, desired to use it maybe for a positional improvement. And they both agree to divorce their spouses and marry each other, which they do, which John confronts him for on grounds of incest, amongst other things. Her uncle, his father's brother is her, it's, they're related. The problem is she brings a daughter into the marriage, Salome, and Salome is, I guess at this point, his stepdaughter. She's, uh, well, I can't even explain the family tree because it doesn't really split. It continues to merge. And he has a birthday party and Salome dances, and we might say that this is where the scriptures are very delicate and say she pleased Herod because it's not what we would maybe consider wholesome. This was not a sock hop. This wasn't, you know, with the uh, doing the twist or whatever it is. This is maybe a little bit worse than that. And Herod is obviously uh, infatuated with his stepdaughter. Ew. And says, hey, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. And she's like, mm. And he goes, no, seriously, up to half of my kingdom, which is really funny because he doesn't have a kingdom. He's been appointed. A, um, he's more like a kind of a governor that's been appointed by Rome. But it's just a, you know, a saying. He's like, I'll do whatever you can and you make it happy. And she's like, well, what should I ask for? So she goes out and is like, Mom, stepdad's being really gross, but he's offering me something really amazing. What should I ask for? Mom's like, John's head. Great idea. This is how I can get rid of him. And so she's like, okay. She goes back in, ask, and then there it goes. And you get to see these kind of two other stumbling blocks just play out in just magnificent elegance of a weak man who is captured by the hearts and minds of a people and a wife who's captured by her pleasures. Like, man, what a mess. Herod doesn't want to kill John. He actually likes John. He, uh, verse 20, he, heard, he listened to him gladly. He'd bring him in, talk to him. Doesn't want to kill him. Notice it's murder. But he can't look bad in front of his military commanders. I mean, I promised the young girl. So he kills him. Meanwhile, you have Herodias, the wife, who is militantly angry at John because John has told her that she's sinning. He's called her to holiness. He's called her to a different way of life and she cannot handle it. It's intriguing, really. You see these kind of four kind of themes. The person of Christ Repentance, not having a fear of man, and a call to holiness. And it's intriguing that in chapter 6, Mark's, it's kind of like a hall of shame. It's all of the people that fail. They fail on these four realities that we have constantly in front of us. Constantly in front of us to try to compromise on the person or work of Jesus. To try to compromise on whether or not repentance has to happen. What does repentance look like? To compromise on theological truths because the culture 
will think we're bad people if we hold the line. To compromise on demanding that God's people are to live holy lives. It's true that the church in the United States is one of the easiest places to be a Christian in some ways. We're not at the point yet where, where I'm going to be thrown in prison. It's not at the point yet where, you know, like Canada, where it's illegal to say some of the stuff I've already just said tonight. It's not the point where other parts of the world where I have to risk, you know, all of us would be risking our lives to be gathered here. But as we continue to think about the reality of the challenges, the difficulties, the persecutions, the struggles of the church, we're going to contend those four things are going to be things that we will continue to see show up. Who is Jesus? Do I have to repent? But what do the people say? And is holiness necessary? Because those are the stumbling blocks. Those are the biggies. And it's intriguing how people don't change. I mean, humans are like, we're, we're humans are the same. Yeah, sure, we've got you know, different technological advances, but man, this is like American culture written in one just kind of chapter, isn't it? People that, with Jesus in their very midst, astonish him with their unbelief because of things we see playing out in front of us every day. I make one other kind of brief but important application is this is also, I would contend, absolutely essential for us to provide good answers for the next generation. I I suspect that one of the reasons, obviously the Lord is in charge of his church, but humanly speaking, one of the reasons the church struggles passing on to the next generation is because we don't provide sufficient answers to those things. Who is Jesus? Is repentance necessary? How do I deal with the fear of man? And do I have to be holy? When we get those answers wrong, it's amazing how rapidly that next generation just misses. Perhaps it would be important for us to think about those things for our kids so that we might be obedient to the scriptures, to have the the good news of the gospel passed on not just to our children, but to a generation yet unborn. The church would continue to flourish in America, as it has for so many hundreds of years already. May it be that it continues, and we are participants in that gathering and perfecting of the saints. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation in him. Thank you that the scriptures explain our, uh, our experience, our circumstances so well. Lord, we confess our hearts are wired in very much a similar way. How many times have we backed off of something because we were afraid of what people might think? Well, I know the Bible says this, but what will my friends think of me? What will my classmates think of me? What will my coworkers think of me? Or where we might have disobeyed just a little because, well, maybe holiness isn't quite that important. Forgive us. Oh, God, give us eyes for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.